Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side. January 2nd, 1971. In the aftermath of the October crisis, the Canadian government grappled with the precarious nature of its federation. Only months earlier, the federal government had imposed martial law on the province of Quebec in order to destroy the murderous terrorism of the FLQ, a militant and nationalist Quebecois independence group that took hostages, waged a decade-long bombing campaign, and murdered Deputy Premier Pierre Laporte. These events left Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau embattled, edgy, and newly illuminated on the subject of Machiavellian real politic and the need for decisive action to expand Canadian interests and national control. Recall that, amidst the Cold War, the looming threat of Canadian federal disintegration was hanging heavily in the air. Various communist uprisings and ethno-national movements were cropping up around the world and Trudeau lost what little patience he had on humoring fringe minorities and their novel ideologies. Instead, he was steadfastly moving ahead with his concept of a quote-unquote just society, a pledge to embolden Canada's future. And for that brief period following the October crisis, Trudeau had momentarily opened his ear to a more traditional, a more conservative, and a more classically national perspective in his war room discussions. And so, from the depths of the Parliament buildings late that January night, Liberal Party ministers, military planners, and trusted political advisors hesitantly coalesced around Operation Brass Citizen, Canada's first and only unilateral military mission. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Smoke-Filled Rooms a dark cast network show dedicated to uncovering the nexus of secretive political evil and true crime story recitals. I am your host, Gregory Zink, and today we're going to be talking about a little-known event that occurred early in 1971, the short-lived and depraved Canadian invasion of Greenland. Yes, you absolutely heard that correctly. Despite Canada's legacy as a polite and civil member of the international community, that reputation was sullied by former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau with one of Canada's most enduring historical black marks. The great northern country momentarily lapsed into murderous invasion, and our story today highlights the dangers of a passive political elite, rogue militarism, and the need for single-handed, and individualistic heroism. Now you might be asking yourself, why on earth would Canada want to invade its peaceful neighbor Greenland? And why haven't I heard of this before? Well, it all started 
with a small group of Canadian military officials who believed that Greenland was a strategically important location that could provide Canada with a major advantage in the Arctic. An assertion of territorial sovereignty that could hopefully expand and rival that of the other major powers. And we also have to remember that at the time, the Cold War was still in full swing, and both the United States and the Soviet Union were competing for dominance in the Arctic region. Canada, as a close ally of the United States, was keenly interested in maintaining its own presence in the region. But why Greenland specifically? Well, for one thing, Greenland is the world's largest island, and it occupies a key position between North America and Europe. Additionally, Greenland is the home of the Tula Air Base, which is one of the United States' most important military installations in the Arctic. Indeed, the Canadian officials who were behind the invasion plan believed that if Canada could gain control of Greenland, it would be able to exert greater influence over the Arctic region and potentially even challenge the United States' dominance in the area. And the man responsible for spearheading this infamous campaign was General Jacob O'Hart, who was known casually as the Jack of Hearts, not just because of his love of poker and seeming luck, but also because of his actual resemblance to the playing card, mustache and all. A man with grand imperial ambitions who wanted to see Canada take its rightful place among the major superpowers of the time. But of course, actually invading Greenland would be a major undertaking, and there was no way that Canada could mount a full-scale invasion without risking a major diplomatic incident with Denmark, which controlled Greenland at the time. So let's dive into this deeply depraved and dark chapter in Canadian history. In the late months of 1971, tensions were running high between Canada and Greenland. Canada was long looking to establish a military base on their soil, citing strategic interests in the Arctic region. Greenland was hesitant to allow Canada to establish a military presence on their territory, fearing an eventual loss of sovereignty, potential environmental damage, and opening the door wide open to their key ally to the south, the United States. And as tensions continued to rise among the allegedly democratic nations, a rogue general named Jacob O. Hart rose to prominence within the Canadian military. O'Hart was a charismatic leader with a reputation for taking bold action, often without the approval of his superiors. O'Hart was convinced that Canada needed a military base in Greenland to protect its interests in the Arctic, and he was willing to do whatever it took to make it happen. Later diary entries even revealed that, quote, I know I can make this happen. Greenland is the gateway to Canada's future destiny. And with this in mind, we won't ever have to listen to the Americans for advice or military help ever again." End quote. In the post-FLQ era, Canadian-Denmark relations began to take a marked turn for the worse. The Canadians became increasingly hostile and openly questioned whether they should just take unilateral action in securing their interests in the Arctic region. These assertions of territorial sovereignty on the Canadian behalf 
were roundly rejected and derided in Danish media. The overtures were even brought before the Danish parliament where they were read aloud and roundly mocked for their arrogance and absurdity. In this remastered audio clip, we hear Deputy Prime Minister Anya Benedict states aloud the Canadian intentions brought to their diplomats. <laughs> Upon hearing of the wide mockery in the Danish parliament, General O'Hart flew into a rage. He demanded that Canadian troops ready for an almost immediate invasion of the island. For not only was O'Hart enraged, but he was aware that Greenland was currently under the quote-unquote polar night. And this is a geological period up to three months during which the sun never rises above the horizon for those living in the Arctic Circle. The farther north one lives, the longer the polar night lasts. So the Greenlanders would be trapped in a permanent darkness. And coupled with the state of permanent darkness, the Canadians would have a significant advantage in regards to tactical gear where they would be in sole possession of the night vision gear, whereas the poorly equipped Greenlanders had almost nothing to defend themselves. So despite the New Year's festivities on December 31, 1970, General O'Hart stayed awake, sober, and writing out a detailed military invasion plan for Greenland. Knowing full well that everyone would be groggy from the partying the night before, he tucked his files under his arms, and went to the parliament building to present it to the prime minister's top staff. After the drunken revelry of the night before, rubber stamps were quickly given to all of his plans, and after hastily arranging the aforementioned meeting at the beginning of this episode, Operation Brass Citizen was officially recognized and deployed by the Canadian federal government. The Greenlandic invasion was to commence on January 4th, 1971. The first plank in General O'Hart's plan was to lead an amphibious invasion on the capital city of Nook. Nook is the largest city in Greenland, an autonomous territory in the Kingdom of Denmark, and is the country's largest cultural and economic center. Thus, if you control Nook, you control Greenland as a whole, because 90% of its population resides in that city. For as noted historian Arthur W. Pedia has noted, quote, The defense of Greenland is the responsibility of the Kingdom of Denmark. The government of Greenland does not have control of Greenland's military or foreign affairs. The most important part of Greenland's defensive territory remains the 12 maritime zones. In recent years, there has been a significant increase in the presence of new challenges. For in the history of Greenland, there have been many changes of presence regarding who is in charge of the security of the Greenlandic people and its land. And this was made none more apparent 
than in the early months of January 1971. Therein, the Canadian Federation landed a successful amphibious invasion that laid bare all of Greenland's security weaknesses." End quote. So at exactly 4.20 a.m. on January 4th, 1971, headed personally by General O'Hart on the leading ship, the HMS King Charles III, the Canadian Navy's Task Force 58 deployed to the east of Nome with a picket group of six to eight destroyers. For three full hours, a minimum of 14 to 18 escort carriers were in the area at all times. Here is a first-hand account of the attack, written in the diary of Private John Zimmerman. Quote, The 1st Navy Division made the assault landings on the Nook shores. Army troops then would come in to relieve them. The Navy provided fire and air support if the Army personnel carrying out the door-to-door -door raids needed it. Coming in behind eventually would be the construction, communications, medical, and supply services. I was tasked with food and ammunition hauling and loading boxes upon boxes of heavy materials into the boats. Eventually, a supporting aircraft carrier battle group was moved to a point southwest of the city. The landing forces, they ran towards Nook under snow clouds that broke in the early hours. They achieved surprise. No one was waiting for these attackers. They were all in the midst of their sleep when all the Canadian forces arrived. End quote. And at this point in the story, things get a little bit dark. For the first time in Canadian history, commando forces would go door to door and collect the oldest males in each household. How mismatched this might have seemed, look up a picture of Nook and notice the brightly colored houses that dot the countryside. But amidst the polar night, all you could see was the occasional flicker of a flashlight while the oldest men were collected and corralled within the extremely tiny prison that they have in Nook City Center. It is there where we find our eventual hero of this entire saga. Rogue dissenter, Nevi Papaluk, an indigenous Greenlander and tradesman, and his trade specialty was perfectly matched for the situation for he was a gunsmith. Known for espousing anti-establishment views, ones of a typically anarchist nature, he initially resisted but was eventually subdued by the Canadian forces. He was dragged to the high security prison compound that was surrounded by tall walls and barbed wire. And throughout the distance, we could see groups of indigenous people gathered outside being handcuffed, duct taped, and occasionally beaten. And there among them was the steadfast resistance of Nevi Papaluk, the young indigenous man with a fierce determination in his eyes. He was cajoled within the prison walls and his heart was pounding with a mix of fear and anger. He was led to his cell where he was thrown immediately inside. The cell was small and dirty with no windows and barely enough room to stand up amongst the other men. Nevi looked around and took a grim view of the situation. But he kept repeating to himself that, quote, I won't let them keep me here. 
I won't let them take away my freedom. End quote. And in the background, echoing off the walls of the prison, everyone could hear the Canadian troops watching the Prime Minister on television delivering sophisticated propaganda which stated that it was Greenlandic terrorists that were the cause for the Canadian invasion. Prime Minister Trudeau can be heard here in a rare justification for Canadian aggression. What is it with all these uh, men with guns around here? Haven't you noticed? Yeah, I've noticed them. I wonder you people decided to have them. What's your worry? I'm not worried, but you so seem to not worry. What's your? I know. I'm I'm worried about living in a town that's uh, full of people with guns running around in it. Are you? Have they done anything to you? Have they pushed you around or anything? They pushed around friends of mine. Yeah. What were your friends doing? Trying to take pictures of them. And through a parallel power, by establishing their authority by kidnapping and blackmail, and I think it's our duty as a government to protect government officials and uh, and uh, and uh, important people in our society against being uh, used as tools in this blackmail. No, I, I still go back to the choice that you, you have to make in the kind of society that you yeah, live in. Well, there's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed, but it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a soldier. At any cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. He managed to find a small space in the corner in which to curl himself up and attempt to sleep for the night, occasionally awoken by the sound of screams and gunshots. But upon daybreak, Nevi and his fellow Greenlanders were awoken by the sound of a baton rattling up against the bars of their cell. They were taken outside under the ruse of some sort of exercise routine, although this was just a crude tactic to see who the troublemakers were all with a mind to either isolate or execute anyone that got in the way of General O'Hart's plans. But while waiting to be let outside, Nevy spoke to one of the other prisoners silently. Quote, We've been locked up here like animals. We've been stripped of our rights, our dignity, and our culture. But I refuse to let them break me. I refuse to let them take away my spirit. Are you with me, brother? His fellow prisoners nodded their heads in agreement, their eyes blazing with determination. And again, Nevi spoke, louder this time. Quote, Let's show them that we're not just inmates or some sort of POW. We're human beings with a voice, and that voice will be heard now. The longer we wait, the higher the chance we will be made an example of. End quote. And with that, he reached into his sock and pulled out his very own handmade facsimile of a German hummingbird gun, otherwise known as the Colibri. And in it was only a singular 2.7 millimeter centerfire cartridge. One shot to help them escape this hell. He grabbed the nearest guard, put his arm around his neck and the pistol up to his temple. He demanded that all the Canadian forces drop their weapons and to surrender immediately. After several terrifying minutes, the guards reluctantly dropped their weapons and put their hands in the air. From there, they were easily corralled into the cells they had put the native Greenlanders. After securing the Canadian forces within the cells, 
Papaluk and the other prisoners made their way to the warden's office, a tall outpost where they could see the rest of the city. And as luck would have it, there when they opened the door to the warden's office, was General O'Hart, who apparently slept through the madness below, with his officer's cap placed over his eyes and his feet up on the desk. Papaluk stormed over towards him, knocked his feet off the desk with his fists, spun his chair around, and grabbed him by the collar. O'Hart quickly ascertained what was happening, and instead of resisting, simply smiled at Papaluk. He maintained a menacing stare, and simply said, quote, You know we're going to win, don't you? End quote. At that point, it is reported that Papaluk grabbed O'Hart, threw him down onto the floor into a dog's position, and used the heel of his boot to push O'Hart's neck down towards the ground. He cocked the tiny hummingbird gun and put it directly behind O'Hart's head. Do you have any final words? Papaluk asked. And O'Hart responded coldly that, quote, You son of a bitch. Don't you know it's April Fool's Day? End quote. <laughs> yeah, as you can gather by this point, the entire episode was a joke. And if you actually made it to this point without looking up even one shred of anything that I said, well, God bless your heart. In regards to references for this episode, the only thing that I can do is credit ChatGPT for helping me make up portions of this script. And the only two parts that were actually real were the two historical clips, one from Pierre Trudeau and one from the Danish parliament. That segment documented some Danish MP bringing up the plight of some circus animals and ensuing laughter, apparently. The other was Prime Minister Trudeau explaining his rationale for sending in federal troops to squash the terrorist Quebec uprising of the FLQ. What you heard was Trudeau's justification for invoking martial law and sending in federal troops to squash the terrorist uprising in Quebec. Which will be an actual episode of Smoke-Filled Rooms eventually. I have been on again, off again working on the script for that episode. But for our purposes here today, everything was completely fictional and if you have even a shred of humor within your body, please share this episode immediately so that we can trick more people on this very special day. So thank you for taking this ride and for listening to this joke-sized episode of Smoke-Filled Rooms. Cheers, be well, and remember to laugh occasionally. Network, indie pods with a dark side.